Hello and welcome to the Autodidacts Anonymous podcast. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Hado. I too am an autodidact. Oh, you nearly got it right. Almost. But unlike our other AA brethren, we actually indulge our addiction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, We do indeed. Um, So today we're talking about the seventh chapter in uh, in Harari's book, Sapiens, and it's entitled Memory Overload. And it's essentially about the invention of numbers and writing without giving giving the end away, Mm -hmm. because he does build up to it in a logical way. But that's essentially what it's about. Um, it's, a, it's a slightly shorter chapter than some of the others we've been through. Yes, indeed. So the might, last one was long. It was. So we might be a little bit shorter today. Um, I wanted to start off by saying that um, I, I just couldn't get into this chapter as much as I did with some of the others. I don't know if you found the same thing. I'm not saying it was bad, but it just didn't captivate me the way some of the other chapters did. I found it a little bit of a slog to kind of get through and take notes about. Interesting, because that... With this chapter, of course, he, he firmly described my world, the world of accountancy, auditing, designing databases, systems analysis, stuff like this. It was a large part of my life at one stage. And uh, I, I thought, yes, so this is how it came about. And yep. all this stuff seems so obvious to me, and yet looking at the thousands of years it took to develop yeah. it, it's very clear that it isn't. Now, uh, the other thing I should say is we haven't caught up for over a week now because I've been a bit sick. Indeed. So uh, I, it might have been the fact that I was sick that made it a slog for me to get through. It could have been that too because it sounds like you you found it, you didn't find it the same. You found it fairly captivating in the way the other chapters are. Yes, so but, so. but it didn't hurt that it was short. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So let's start from the beginning, as we usually do. So um, he starts off with talking about pick-up basketball, of all things, saying that the way that human beings can get together and play a game of of, uh, pick-up basketball with strangers, if that's the case, is by using shared imaginary rules to allow us to play. Um, As long as we all agree on the rules, we can play the game. in the case of pick-up basketball, the rules are relatively simple and concise and we can store them in our heads. Um, and then he draws the analogy to the rules that were necessary to live in simple foraging bands back in the day. Yeah. Uh, all, everything was stored in your head, okay? Um, you had to, still had to learn the rules because yeah. of the, you know, they weren't in our DNA, but once you learned them, you could store them in your head. Okay? Yes. Um, in a similar way, we still need shared imaginary rules for more complicated systems. And yes. some of the more com- complex ones we have are kingdoms, churches, and trading networks. Indeed. The problem is the, tr- the rules are so complicated that we can't store them all in our heads. Yes. Essentially. Um, they require the handling and storage of, of huge amounts of information. And it's much more than any single human brain uh, can contain and process. Once you start talking about an empire of a million people, it becomes pretty it obvious. Does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, unlike for say honeybees, whose rules for having a society are basically encoded in their DNA, yeah, ours are not. So we need to make a conscious effort to sustain laws, customs, procedures, manners, etiquette, 
all the things we live by uh, to prevent the social order from collapsing. Yes. Interesting thing being that while we do have some stuff in our DNA as to how we relate to other people and social structures, yep. almost the defining characteristic of human beings is our flexibility. Yes. We are far less dependent on these than any other species. Yeah, yeah. I'd say we have... I'd say that the ability to follow the rules of a basketball game are probably in our DNA. I mean, we have the ability... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we have the ability to basically learn them and they're in our head and we're away. We have the ability to do that. But we don't really have the ability to store uh, the more complex structures, you know, when it comes to empires and societies no, and no. all that sort of stuff. So, you know, uh, my point being that I think we do have some of these rules stored in our DNA. Is, did you say that we didn't? Well, we have innate inclinations stored in our DNA. But as we discussed the other day, you know, are we supposed to be a uh, monogamous culture? Well, the answer is no. We can jump in three or four different directions, even yeah. six different directions. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess a good indicator sometimes is, is uh, you know, a phrase we commonly use is, you know, what's human nature? Is, yeah. it, is it in our nature to be monogamous? I mean, to me, it's quite obvious. It is, is partly, but not to be strictly monogamous. Correct, yes. Um, so the stuff that you consider to be human nature, you could probably say, oh, well, that's encoded in our DNA. But the stuff that's not natural to us, you can probably say, well, you know, we, that stuff we've learned. We have innate inclinations, mm. um, but unlike any other species, we can transcend. We don't have to follow our inclinations. Yeah. Mind you, it's hard work. Yeah. We do it all the time. It yeah. causes us stress, yeah. not just doing what comes naturally, yeah. but we do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. So um, empires generate huge amounts of information, such as laws, transactions, economic transactions, taxes, inventories of military supplies and merchant vessels, calendars of festivals and victories, okay, yeah. for example. Um, and the human brain is just not a good storage device for databases of this size. Right. And, and that's for three main reasons. One, its capacity is inherently limited, as I'm well aware from a day-to-day -day life. Um, secondly, humans die, and so their brains die with them. Yeah. And thirdly, the human brain is adapted to store and process only particular types of information. So shapes, qualities and behaviour patterns of plants and animals. Um, we also had to bear in mind the opinions and relations of several dozen tribe members. So our brains are optimised to store botanical, zoological, topographical and sociological information. Yeah. There's another thing which also comes in with complex societies, which is evidentiary capacity. Right. Um, so I make a contact with someone, that's fine. It gets recorded somewhere by, by somebody's memory or whatever. There may be a, an established recorder for the tribe. But 30 years' time, he's died, and I still want to establish that, you know, those cattle over there are mine. I did not sell them. No, they're not they yours, no, they're them. mine. They and, were mine. And so Remember goes, 30 years ago when we were at the pub and you promised me those cattle? That's right. And so you've got this problem that, you know, the human brain doesn't give a nice signed docket with a date on it and all that sort of thing. Mm, mm. 
societies became enormously bigger and more complex, uh, a new type of information became increasingly important on top of the ones we've just mentioned, and that's numbers. And um, getting back to the, uh, the powers that be, I suppose, um, a lot of the reason that numbers were required was for taxes, because the rulers, the powers, wanted to know how much stuff they could take. Yeah. <laughs> um, so taxes were based on numbers about people's incomes, their possessions, you know, payments that they'd made, what debts and fines they'd incurred, and there's also numbers revolving around discounts, exemptions, things like that. Yeah. Okay, so now we're not just talking about, we're not just talking words per se, we're talking about uh, uh, arithmetic numbers. So once society's got complex enough, this added up to millions and millions of bits of data which needed to be stored and processed. Yeah. Um, the limitations of the human brain were a severe constraint on the size and complexity of human collectives. So essentially human cities, empires could only get, they couldn't grow any larger than essentially what we were able to store in our brains in the early days. Correct. Now, a couple of interesting things here, of course. One is that there are some autistic people who have amazing memory capacities. Yep. This ability exists within the brain, but in a normally developed human brain, which is built for a hunter-forager capacity, we then put an overlay structure over that that stops us being able to do it. Yeah. And an autistic brain that hasn't developed that overlay, it is actually able to remember every word of a book it saw or every number it's ever heard or whatever it may be. But they're very rare individuals yeah. and you still have all the other problems of there's not enough of them and they die and we can't rely Well, yeah, and a person with that kind of brain is not going to remember a contract that was made 100 years before well, they were born. That's correct. So, you know, there are inherent limitations yes. based on the human brain, regardless of how powerful it is. Exactly right. So once a critical number of humans and property was reached, it became necessary to store and process large amounts of mathematical data. And this led to systems collapsing, essentially, because we didn't have a way to do it. Yeah. So cities got smaller and all the rest of it. Well, what I suspect is... Well, they didn't grow. That, that's right. They yeah. grew to their limit, and if they went past that limit, bad things happened. Yep. Alternatively, they were stuck at that limit. Yep. And I think you asked the question a couple of uh, podcasts ago, why did it take us so long to go from the agricultural revolution to the building of civilizations? Yeah. Okay, it took about... Six, seven thousand years, really, six thousand years, let's say, from ten thousand to say, let's thirty five hundred yes. BC, six and a half thousand years. Essentially, it was for this reason, yes. And and, and that's actually the, the most interesting thing I found in this chapter. I hadn't actually considered that before because I we were asking that. that question a couple of podcasts ago. I, I why agree, so long? absolutely. Why so long? And what's fascinating about that comes out of this book and its history and its, its time ages is. How long it takes to get basic structures in place. Yeah. Um, you know, 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens arrived, but the gene that connected our brain up was 70,000 years ago. Yep. Then we sailed over the world, Australia, America, etc. 
But getting from the agricultural revolution to the dawn of writing, we're talking thousands of years yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, I had a debate with my friend Graham the other day. Uh, he was saying how obvious it is that the moon is a sphere being lit from one angle and why did it take them so long to work out theory of gravity and so on. And I said, look, these things are not obvious mm. when you're trying to work them out from first principles. They're obvious once you've been taught them. Yeah, yeah. What, what I think of, what worries me sometimes about that is once you find something obvious... You're almost locked down into that opinion, so you can actually be you actually can actually be fed misinformation. Yes, and and I'm prone to this actually. You know, I tend to believe what I read to a degree. So the stuff I'm reading in Harari's book, I'm not going back and, and double checking it and going back to original sources. I'm taking his word for it. Right now, I'm I feel comfortable that you know he's he's saying the right things, but uh, there's a double edged sword there, isn't there? There is. Uh, however, I have the benefits of um. Well, I'm a sceptic by nature, I had an auditing background. Um, I regard things, particularly facts which seem comfortable to me, yep. I regard with great suspicion. Yeah, but there's a cost of being a sceptic as well, because there there's is. so much time and effort and Absolutely. inefficiency in a sense. I mean, it'd be much more efficient if you just grab information and just use it. Oh, yes. But, you know, is that information true? And that's where being a sceptic. This, uh, is, this is where we've talked about the middle class bubble and there's also, you know, the Western scientific bubble and this sort of thing. It's, yeah. it's so easy to see things from one's particular perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and changing your headset to a hunter-gatherer or whatever it may be yeah. is really quite challenging. And yet sometimes I think at present, for example, that physics has taken a particular path which, although good, is limited. Yeah. And we'll talk about that some other time when okay. I get onto entropy. Yep. So, um, it, yeah, so it took many thousands of years after the agricultural revolution for humans to create what we would call civilization. Um, the ancient Sumerians were the first to cross this threshold. Yay, Sumerians. I mean, that's quite some achievement. Yes, it's a pity they got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, every civilization gets it wrong in the well, long term. Well, exactly right. It's a learning curve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, from sitting where I am, you can easily say, well, you obviously go to a zero to nine system. You need an alphabet, which is phonetic. It's so obvious. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what I'd like you to do is tell me something that's going to be obvious in 200 years' time uh, that we don't yet know. When, when you can do that, then I'll be impressed. Exactly right. <laughs> So between 3500 and 3000 BC uh, was really when this civilization came about. Um, and that was the time where some unknown genius invented a system for storing and processing information outside of the human brain. Hello, there's a big breakthrough here. Yes, um, and I think one of the things which caused it to take so long was because we've got this wonderful adaptable brain, we were used to remembering everything in our brain. We yeah. were used to saying everything. The idea that you could record things yeah. anywhere except the brain took yeah. a long time. It's not a natural way for the human brain to think. Apparently not. Yeah. It is to me now. But You've probably been trained it, though. I have. Um, you know, I mean, let's face it. A lot of um, school kids don't particularly like sitting down and reading and writing. Okay, it's not something. It's not like going out and playing and kicking the football around at lunchtime. You know, no. it's just not a natural activity. 
No. Um, um, now, you've done it, and I've done it probably to a lesser extent than you throughout our lives. But, yeah, I mean, I find it tough. I find it tough to sit in the library for six and eight hours a day just learning things. No, you know, I'd rather be... I'd rather be out going for a walk or Absolutely. You know, doing things that come more natural. But that, that's, that's the innate drive. I mean, the whole idea that you spend years and years learning these things called written systems and numbers, etc., shows how difficult they are for yeah. us in many ways. Yeah. So, um, so this genius that invented this system, he opened the way for the appearance of cities, kingdoms and empires. This data processing system invented by the Sumerians is called, wait for it, I hope we haven't spoiled it, <laughs> writing. Yes. Yep. Actually, a form of hieroglyphs, or at least that's where it then develops. Yeah, correct. So we're going to talk about the development of it yep. pretty much now. So writing is a method of storing information through material science. That's the definition of writing. Yep. The Sumerians' uh, first writing consisted of two types of signs which happened to be pressed into clay tablets. There were signs for numbers, and the other type, and then there was a type of signs which represented nouns, for want of a better word. So represented objects, yeah. you know, people, animals, territories, dates, which is an interesting one, I suppose, yeah. you know, I would have thought. So they must have used non-numbers for dates, is what I got from that. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. There are different calendars. So maybe it's not completely intuitive to use numbers for dates. Because to me, I read that and I was like, oh, hang on, a date, wouldn't you use numbers for a date? But maybe maybe they had a different day for every name of the year or something, I, I don't know. I can't think of any reason why one would naturally use numbers yeah. for dates because you have to remember that our dating system is actually very complicated. It's got days, months, years yeah. is what we finally got to. Yeah. And even to have years means you have to have some sort of starting point yeah. for your years. Yeah. This... This is one of our most complex numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't follow the numeric form of anything else. But yeah. we are indebted to the Sumerians. Yes. Um, for our, not just our calendar systems, but the way we measure degrees and yep. time and all sorts of things. So in the early stages, writing was pretty basic. It was restricted to facts and figures. Um, so, for example, the great Sumerian novel doesn't exist. Because um, writing at that stage was not a full script, so it was a partial script. Yeah. So the difference between a partial script and a full script <clears throat> is a full script is a system of recorded signs or a type of writing that can rep replicate spoken language yes. completely yeah. or as good as completely, yes. you know? which is what we use today when we write in English. Yeah. Um, so, so this partial script they came up with was only used for essential record keeping. Um, and essentially, it came, came down to money. Uh, so uh, the, the documents or the, the, the written records that we have from today are humdrum economic documents recording things like the payment of taxes, the accumulated, cum, accumulation of debts, and the ownership of property. Okay. And uh, I, liked, I liked the fact that Harari talks about the first name known in human history. Oh, okay. Um, well... The reason I like it, of course, is the first name known in human history is actually the name of an accountant. <laughs> Probably the name of an accountant, we don't know for sure, but uh, it was a name on a document to say that he'd recorded this stuff. And I thought, you know, that, that's, that's 
the start of history was an accountant doing his thing. And you didn't bother to memorise the name to tell us all what it is now? Okay, yeah, Cushing. Yeah. Um, I, I actually missed that. I, I missed that, the first name in human history. My understanding was that the first name in human history... Uh, it's the first recorded name in yeah, human yeah. history. My, so where I, where I had it at was um, Sargon of Akkad. That was oh, my understanding. He's the first famous person in history. Right. Um, but apparently some accountant beat him to the punch. We think so. <laughs> um, eventually the, the Mesopotamians wanted to write things down other than monotonous mathematical data. So between 3000 and 2500 BC, more and more signs were added and it gradually developed into a full script. Yeah. Called cuneiform, or we call it today cuneiform. Yeah. A um, couple of things. One is, again, I'm surprised at how long it took. Even when they got to the idea that you can record things not just in the human brain, the idea that you can record words not in the human brain, it still seemed to take them ages. But I think that was because there was less need to do it. What they really needed to do to stop this, their society from collapsing was to record economic data Look, and taxes. I, I, I'm not... Recording novels and so forth. Uh, yeah, okay, they probably could have come up with it, but I think there was less need to do so in a hurry. Um, that I, would be my thesis. Right. I, I'm not suggesting that the first need wasn't to record... Numbers. No, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not suggesting you are indeed, suggesting that. But I am suggesting that, yeah, you know, within a few years, at the very least, the idea that you could record instructions for a journey or a contract or an agreement or something like that would seem to follow pretty naturally, and yet it actually took centuries. To move from... A yeah, and, and like I said, I'd say the answer is there wasn't really a need for it. I mean, these things take a lot of skill, a lot of time and effort to oh. learn, and there just wasn't a, wasn't a pressing need for it. That, that to me is... I mean, at the end of the day, humans are going to come up with what they need to come up with fairly quickly. If they take a long time to do it, usually it's because, you know, they don't need to. Okay, you, you have a point, of course, that I don't think anybody would learn to play the piano if it wasn't from the first moment you push that note down, it goes dong... <coughs> Um, if you had to, <clears throat> which is the way it tends to be with a computer, if you had to actually get to be quite good at doing something before it gave you any sort of payback, yeah. that is a big barrier to overcome. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. So the full script could then, be, could then be used to issue decrees from the king and prophecies and oracles from the religious people and to write personal letters. So, you know... People weren't used to writing personal letters, you know, back in 3500 BC, so there probably wasn't a lot of demand for it. <laughs> You're right. Look, it's one of those things where once you've got it, you can see how useful it is. I remember yes. when we were trying to convince the executives of the company I worked for um, that we needed email, and they couldn't see, could not see that it would be useful at all. I mean, yeah. they got secretaries who did type the memos for them. What would they want email for? Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. Um, now, around this same time, the Egyptians also developed a, a full script as well, and we know that as uh, famously as hieroglyphics. Indeed. Um, in 1200 BC, a full script was developed in China, and around 1000 to 500 BC, a full script was developed in Central America. 
So right. those Americans don't muck around. They hadn't been there that long and they were, you know, they were flying. And now, a couple of things we should also remember here. One is we're looking at the dawn of writing here, so we've talked about the various ways of recording partial scripts in written form, but that is not the only way they recorded things. So with the, uh, the quipu, um, yep. they, you were looking at tying knots. Correct, but that wasn't a full script. It that was, was a partial script. That was, was, that was an accounting system. Correct, it was only partial script. A bit like an abacus. Yes, but again, we have the natural feeling that, oh, well, we record things in writing. Again, not true. You mm. can record things in lots of ways. And yeah. We did record things in lots of ways. Yeah. Fortunately, they didn't have tape recorders, else everything would probably have been recorded on tape recorders. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd never have got to writing at all. Yeah, yeah. So once we got to um, full script, we were able to write poetry Indeed. and history books and romances and dramas and prophecies and cookbooks. Yeah. So we're away now. Um, interestingly, there were many great works of art, works of literature before this time. Indeed. Uh, but they were passed down orally. Yes. Which is no mean feat in itself. So examples of this are the Hebrew Bible, um, the Greek Iliad, the Hindu Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a full-time job. Yes. I mean, that's what educated um, priests, that's what the priestly class in Hindu societies would do. And they would basically memorise the, the Hindu that's scripture. Right. So instead of you know, learning, reading and writing and stuff like that, they were in fact spending heaps of time perfecting their memory to mm. record all this. And stuff. they would put it in, it's like remembering the words of a song. Once you've memorised the words of a song, you never forget them. It's a bit like riding a bike. And that's why a lot of this stuff was in poetry yeah. form. Because in a sense, it, it, it just it just sinks into your brain better. The whole homeic Iliad. Yeah, and, and apparently over, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years, these things didn't change because they were just ingrained in from generation to generation. Yeah. But once we wrote them down, well, you could argue that they, 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 things can still change after you've written them down, but, yes. uh, you know, at least you know what it was like at a point in time. An important point there, I question on Cora the other day of, you know, how can we know that anything went back more than 6,000 years, etc. there was no writing. Now, yep. the Australian Aborigines never developed writing. Mm. So they were still using this memory-based system. Yes. And they do remember stuff going back a heck of a long time because of it. Yeah. Um, and you can put some reliance on that mm. because it was the system. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, so you learnt a dance, you learnt a song, you yes. learnt a story, which is usually in some kind of poetic form. Yes. And the brain does work like that. Like you talk about how we we recognise beats and rhythm and stuff. Yes. And if you can put a story in a rhythmic kind of form, it'll stick in your brain. This is the thing that humans, as I define the term, have the yeah. post-cognitive revolution yeah. that no other creature apparently So then that speaks to memory as well, and Correct. also collective memory, Correct. individual memory and collective yes, memory. Yes, because the whole poetic di-da, 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 di-da thing yeah. is how we naturally remember things because we've got a brain that's wired that way. Mm. No other creature has. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, so... As we started to record more and more information, because we've got this great new way of doing so, the problem we had was we couldn't find any of it. Data retrieval became a problem. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do if you've accumulated thousands of clay tablets with 
writing on them. Okay. Now, so, so half, for example, oh, no, sorry, I'll let you see. Well, half, half our listeners probably have never lived in a world without Google. Yeah. But, you yeah. Know, yeah. To yeah. us, this was a real problem. Yeah. Finding yeah. Yeah. Well. Not so much for us, but for the Sumerians 3,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you're trying to, for example, you're trying to sort out the details of a property sale from 30 years earlier. Um, those cattle that you promised me in the pub that night. Which I strangely which I haven't don't seen. remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> so how do you find the right tablet? So if you and I have a contract, we signed a beer coaster out of the pub. How do, we, uh, how do we find that 30 years later among thousands of, of other identical drunken <laughs> scripts? Yeah, indeed. Um, now, even if you do find it, how do you know that it's the latest one? How do you know it wasn't superseded? Big problem. Yeah. And we, we still see that with things like laws. Yeah. Um, you know, I find a, a case law back from 30 years ago. Yeah. But is that the latest case on this issue? Yeah, yeah. And what if it's not findable at all because it's been lost or destroyed uh-huh. in a fire? Um, so at the end of the day, just having a clay document is not going to be enough, right, to base our society around. It's not going to guarantee efficiency, accuracy, and convenient data processing. What we now require are organisational methods such as catalogues, reproductive methods such as photocopy machines, which I don't think were around in 3000 BC, and accurate and rapid retrieval methods such as computer algorithms, which I don't think were around in 3000 BC either. And we also need people to use these tools. They weren't around when I started working. Correct. So developing these systems actually proved far more difficult than inventing writing itself. And this might also then pertain with why it took so long. Yes. Um, you know, because it wasn't useful, because what's the point of writing it down? Because I can't bloody find where I've stored it anyway. Um, so it's actually thought that it, there are a lot more scripts around than the ones we've spoken about. But these societies collapsed yes. because of their inability to wrap. We're really talking about metadata, yes. data about the data, which Absolutely. is a word that comes up a lot in the modern day. But it's, and you think, well, oh, the metadata is actually really important. I came to this, I came to this conclusion. I know you have as well, and this really solidified that for me. That yes. the data about the data, in a lot of a lot of ways, is more important than the data itself. Absolutely, because yeah. the data itself is important, but it's useless without the metadata. Um, okay, so the successful big empires, such as the ones we've mentioned, Sumer, Egypt, China, and the Incas, were the ones that managed to solve this problem. Yes. I found that fascinating. Yes. You know, because we know these were the big empires. Okay, they had the right plants, they had the right animals and all that, but they also invent, essentially invented metadata, yes. catalog and retrieval systems. It's interesting what makes things work, you know, <clears throat> from... Shared mythos of religions to monetary yeah. systems to getting your bureaucracy right. And the sheer ingenious, ingeniousness of the human animal to like solve all these problems. Yeah. Even though, you know, you look back and go, oh, why didn't they do it quicker, you know? <laughs> um, so a big part of the solution involved the, the highly detailed training of a huge army of bureaucrats to catalogue and retrieve the data. Yes. So we're talking about scribes, clerks, librarians, and accountants. And accountants. Yeah. The investment that the empire has to put into teaching people to do this stuff, once again, it's like universal education. Once you've done it, you can see how useful it is. Yeah. But initially, to say, we're going to put aside, well, bureaucracy of China 
you know, 100,000 bureaucrats, mm. putting the energy into teaching 100,000 kids to be able to become bureaucrats. But they would have done it because they needed to. Like oh, it yeah. would, I don't think it was necessarily foresight that said, right, I can see that there's going to be problems with this and I'm now going to try to have to... What would have happened is all these problems would have come up that they couldn't solve yeah. and they're like, oh, we need to put something in place to be able to solve these problems yeah. when they come up. But we all we try and use what we have to solve a problem. So if we've got a memory in our brain, we try and do everything with that. It takes a real leap of insight to move to something, you know, as I said, you know, emails. Um, couldn't get executive management to understand that emails would be useful. And it goes right back to the telegraph. Um, who needs a telephone? Who needs a telegraph? We've got fast runners. That was the comment of some guru in New York. Um, this, this is the limitations of our mindset. Mm. We tend to go with what we have. Yes, but I think, <laughs> we disagree a bit on this, I think there would have been a more pressing need than what you're implying with that. Oh. So I think I'm the king of um, some Sumerian city. And I've got people coming to me all the time trying to rule on who owns such and such property. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's not then foresight to then build the system that allows me to know. That is pressing need because Correct. I want to keep control of the city. Correct. If you can't, if you can't make those decisions, you're not going to have the city for very long. Correct. And um, you know, the, the way we got our alphabet um, was because the Egyptians found this group that actually had a phonetic way of writing things down. Even though they got their existing hieroglyph system, yep. um, they recognised the benefits of this other one. Mm. And so they started to adopt it informally. Yep. And that then got spread around the whole Egyptian empire and eventually out to Yeah, a bit like how the English language changes today. Like words start out informal and the next thing you know they're in the dictionary. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so this whole data about data and retrieval and cataloging and all that sort of stuff it's a very structured way of thinking it's not it's not a way that we think naturally no um it's much different than our brain's natural free form style so script has had a huge impact on the way we humans think and view the world and i think you've kind of acknowledged that a couple of times today you're having trouble understanding why you wouldn't think like that because, because your way of thinking has been so defined by this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I have 15 years of training and eventually they got it into my head. Yeah, eventually it's natural. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, free association and holistic thought, which is how we, we really evolved to think, uh, have given away to compartmentalisation and bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to talk about uh, numbers a bit more. Now... Quite a lot later on, about a thousand years after the time we're talking about, before the 9th century AD, um, a new partial script was invented, which made the processing of data much more efficient. And we're talking about the digits, the zero to nine. Yeah. Um, they're often known as Arabic numerals, but they're actually invented by the, the Indians, the Hindus. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Arabs you know, appropriated it, and that's how it got into the West. Yeah. Um, once, later on, sorry. once again, an example of borrowing a good idea. Yeah. Um, so the need was there. I mean, the Romans were trying to do run. Try doing long division in the Roman numerals. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> That's right. And, but you know, even though they were running a vast empire and recording all these numbers, yeah. they couldn't get as far as coming up with a better number system than Roman numerals, yeah. which is horrible. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, later on, science for addition, subtraction, and multiplication were added to this system. And now we've got a basis for modern mathematical notation. Uh, interestingly, this has become the world's dominant language, even though it's actually only a partial script. Um, complex ideas are often translated into numbers, and they're used worldwide. I, I found that an interesting statement, and initially I said, no, it's not. And then I thought, well, yes, but hang on. If what he means is that everybody uses the same numbers, everybody, all eight billion, seven and a half billion people of us, he's right. It's the Esperanto of the number system. It, it's the lowest common denominator of yeah. something, a recording system that we all share. Yeah. He's right. And we don't do that with, with um, words. No, we don't. Mm. Um, so a couple, of, a couple of examples of complex ideas that are reduced to a number that everyone can understand are poverty line, your credit rating, yeah. uh, whatever it happens to be. And, and this, this is implied metadata as well, which is, that's, that's a whole huge subject in itself. But you, you talk about credit rating now, Neither you nor I could say exactly how a credit rating is actually even recorded. Yeah. But yeah. we understand the concept of credit yeah, rating. Yeah, of what and it the means. So, so you've reduced all this language, all this written script down to, to a number. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, more, more recently, um, since the information revolution, mathematical script has given way to an even more revolutionary writing system, which is the binary code used by computers comprising only ones and zeros. Yeah, and it's interesting that we still use the term writing because while it's a recording system, I've never seen, I think I've only once in my life seen a printout of ones and zeros. Okay. Um, we do not, in fact, write ones and zeros, but of course we talk about writing to disk. It is recorded as ones and zeros, yes. but not in any form that my eye can read. Computers can only understand ones and zeros, yeah. so anything a computer's doing is, is in that in yeah, that script. that's right. Yeah. Um, so in a nutshell, writing was born as the servant of human consciousness, but it's increasingly becoming its master, okay? Because it is difficult for computers to think in our terms of talking, feeling, and dreaming, yeah. uh, many of us are learning how to talk in... Computer language, yes, right, which is numbers which can, computers can understand, uh, binary code. Uh, even taking that a step further, there's a lot of work being done in the field of artificial intelligence, which is the attempt to create a human-like consciousness in terms of the binary script of numbers. Yeah. So, so, so now we've gone from human human consciousness creating this binary script, yes, to the binary script perhaps creating. Consciousness. A diff, well, a different type of intelligence. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's yes, you know, that's pretty mind-blowing. And the other thing I find mind-blowing about this is that it's possible. You see, you said human ingenuity faced with problems after a few thousand years or centuries or whatever actually came up with solutions. Yeah. But once you see the solutions, you actually say, isn't it mind-blowing that you can actually do these things with metadata, that you can come up with scripts, that you can record so much in binary, that you know that we have 
that there exist solutions to these sorts of problems. Yeah. Because there's nothing... When you throw, say, let's design a universe, yeah. you don't say, well, obviously there's going to have to be solutions to bureaucratic filing problems. Yeah. And yet that is exactly what this universe does provide, and I find that mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so that brings us to the end of the chapter and to our unanswerable question, unless there was something you wanted to say in summary about the chapter before no, we start. No, no, I'll start sweating now. <laughs> And I'm going to be ruthless with my marking. Oh, not again. <laughs> okay, so this, this chapter started with an, an analogy about pick-up basketball and the way that we sort of create some rules, we all learn the rules, and then we're able to play a game, which is a whole new creative thing that um, these rules have allowed us to do. Okay. Um, is life just a big game, Hutto? It's a... Very important question. It is one of the most important questions of the 21st century. And we're going to talk a little bit about AI and AI consciousness soon, so I, I'll bring it up again there. Yeah. But the answer is, I don't believe that life is just a game, but it is perfectly possible to simulate life as a game. Yeah. You know, Property deals are not a game, but you can make monopoly. Yeah. Um, so it may well be that you can produce a game of life that works very well as a game and also in a reasonably realistic form. Mm. So I don't know the answer to this one. Sometimes I think maybe life just is a game. So I'm not a ruthless person. I, you know, I don't go around monopolising things and putting people out of business. But if I'm playing Monopoly within the context of a game, I am basically a, yes. a ruthless bastard. And I think some people might take that attitude into life. And I don't live my life as if it's a game, but I don't know for sure that it's just not some big game. I think it's quite difficult to prove that it isn't. Um, there are, we'll talk about that again at a different thing when we talk about um, feelings and emotions and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, the other example that comes to my mind is I like to watch the TV show Survivor, which, yes. is, which is all about game theory, which we yes. have to use in our real lives to get by. Yes. You have to kind of, what, what are they going to do? And I'll try and act in a way that kind of counteracts what they're going to do or I'll assist them to get their goals which help me get to my goals yes and so there's a lot of game playing that, that goes on in life I mean you just got to be in a relationship to know that absolutely and you know chess chess was invented as a war game yeah and yeah. it works very and well and I, I believe most all sports I, I believe rugby was uh, was invented yes for that yes. reason as well um so uh in fact I think the Olympic Games were formed for um prowess in yeah. war, things yeah. like throwing javelins and... Yeah, yeah. And Australian football was invented to keep cricketers fit in the winter. And so now we've, now we've invented a game to help us play another game. Indeed, I didn't know that. <laughs> there you go. Bit, fun you. fact. Yeah. Um, my next question is, why do a lot of students hate mathematics so much and struggle with it? Well... I'd actually like to turn that question round. No, say, you're not allowed to. That's the question. My question is, how come some of us 
do mathematics very well and very easily yeah. because you wouldn't expect within a hunter-forager that mathematics would be something that came easily to us. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because I was good at maths at school and I, found, I didn't find it too hard. But having said that, I've thought about this before we caught up today and I think the reason I found it easy was because they would go through and show you step-by-step step how to do something and once you've done it once or twice, followed it was really it was really learning by imitating in a sense. Right. And once you've done it a couple of times, you knew how to do it. Then you got that right in the test. Yes. Now I suppose there is a leap of logic in there somewhere. I must have something must have clicked with me that perhaps wasn't clicking with the person sitting next to me. Yes. Um, and I I think, and I'm answering my own question before you get a chance to. Well, yes and no. I mean, what you've said there is that we can learn by formula and imitation, which we certainly can. Right. Um, getting that to the next insight, I mean, we were taught to do various proofs in geometry, but then you were given, so now prove this. Yep. And that required a whole new step of insight as you put the tools together that you'd learned. Yeah, I didn't find that step of insight. If it, was a, if it was the same problem with different numbers, yeah. for example, then it wasn't really a step of insight. It was just applying what we already learned. Um, but yeah, sometimes there were logical yeah. things you had to make. And I'm not saying, oh, well, at, at the school level, that was pretty rare. I mean, if you're doing a PhD in mathematics, yeah, you're really in that domain of, of going yeah. to the next level. But the, the thing is that, you know, we have the von Neumanns, etc., who who can see a problem yeah. and solve it that other mathematicians have yeah. been scratching their head over for, for years. Yeah. Um, I think the reason was that perhaps I was better at maths than the, perhaps the kid sitting next to me was because I was prepared to do the work. It wasn't, an, you know, the, the, the mental work. And, and it, it, I suppose it wasn't pleasant. I mean, I wouldn't have sat down on the weekends and did maths problems for fun. I did it because I suppose there was some pressure on me to do it and to get good grades and so forth. So I just did it. Um, I'm not a huge fan of... Um, you know, natural ability and things like that. I think sometimes it just comes down to, you know, are you prepared to, to do what it takes to get the result? But what I liked about maths was once you, once you, once it had clicked, it was fine. You never had to think again about it. Right. Well, that, that was your experience. Yeah. I have to own up that I was not very good at doing that basic work. Yeah. Um, I only speak one language well, despite efforts at others. Um, but I have put in years of work to be able to do what I do with language. Yeah. Um, so you may be right, but then again, my mother taught reception class school and she said after two weeks I knew which kids were going to sail through school for the rest of their life without any trouble or whatever was done to them, which kids were going to do all right provided we taught them properly and which ones I was going to have to spend the rest of the year helping so they didn't fall out of the education system. Mm. She said, it was innate. Within two weeks, I knew which ones but had what it. Was the qual one what was the quality that separated them? I mean, was she saying it was intelligence? Was she saying it was teachability? I mean, what was, I, mean I, I, I hear that there are differences between students. I haven't heard what that difference was. I think that's a very valid question because that gets onto the topic of things like intelligence and she was she was basically talking about intelligence but you're right that intelligence is a complex subject yeah. which includes things like and she might have interpreted as intelligence and it may, it may have been a combination of two other things look it, it also included such things as motivation look some yeah. kids were naturally curious give them a new thing and they went and headed off with it others yeah. you needed to nurse yeah. them through it and all that sort yeah. of thing yeah
Um, next question. Why did the Sumerians use a base six numbering system as opposed to the more intuitive 10 that we use? And the reason that we use the 10 system in the day is because we have 10 digits on our, on our hands. So we can count up to 10 by using our fingers. Um, this almost had me stumped. Did Sumerians me. have three fingers on each hand? Hello. <laughs> this almost had me stumped until I realised that you were spinning a tricky one on me because they didn't use a six-base system. <laughs> they used a 60-base system of six and ten. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, that's, yeah, fair enough. And we find this, for example, in their 360 degrees of a circle. We find it in 60 minutes in the hour and 60 seconds in the minute and all this sort of thing. Yeah. But then I had a bit more of a, a think and look at this. And the answer is they were concerned with dividing things up and yeah. segregation. Yeah. And 60 divides equally into a hell of a lot of numbers. Well, that's one thing. The other thing is that 5 and 10 don't. If you take a circle yeah. and try dividing it into fifths or tenths, yeah. that's very difficult. Yeah. Um, the reason is, remember those exercises we had to do with rule straight edge and compass? Yeah. Um, straight edge and compass, you can do 3, you can do 6, you can do 4, you can do 12... 10, 5, horrible. I mean, the 72 degrees yeah. in a fifth of a circle. That's yeah. hard. Yeah. So the Sumerians had worked out that, you know, dividing things into sixths was a lot easier. Yes, uh, that's correct. Oh, ha, survived together. <laughs> um, now, you love this one. Do clerks and accountants, and I could probably include IT people in this, in this day and age, do, do they think in a non-human way? Ah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it seems that we do. <laughs> um, he makes that point very well. And, uh, you know, he's made the point that the way I think now is a very unnatural way for a human being to think. Yeah, um, just a bit of background. He worked as an accountant for, for many years. I did, yes. Yeah, and I worked in IT for many yeah, years well, as well. I, I also have qualifications in systems analysis. I was the link between the IT department and the accountants. At yeah. one stage, I was a systems So you were competent both ways? Uh, yes. So um, you, were, you, were, you were translating between the non-humans and the non-humans? That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, worlds of metadata and designing databases and stuff like this yeah. is, is where my creative mind worked. For I can life. see why you would have liked this chapter, because this is, this is right up your alley. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, now, I, I probably didn't like it because it was a non-intuitive way of thinking. Uh, yeah, uh, you were forced into the <laughs> IT mould at one stage yeah, too. I was. Um, will humans ever, to be able, ever be able to create a consciousness in binary script? Yeah. Now, this ties back to your first question of his life just again. Um, Emotions, feelings, stuff like that. Okay. If by consciousness you mean more than simply self-awareness and intelligence, I think the answer is no. I think there's more to consciousness than just information, and binary is basically just information. Yeah. However... You ask the question, is life just a big game? 
And I do think it may be possible to create an artificial intelligence just using binary scripts, etc., basically an algorithm. What algorithms do is they solve problems. Yeah. So if you can create the game of life yeah. as a game, yeah. as a set of problems to be solved, yeah. you can probably create an algorithm which solves the game of life as you've defined it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the things that really bothers me about the world at present. Because we are getting very close to being able to develop algorithms which can tackle the general intelligence problem. If you can also define the game of life, you can use that algorithm to solve the game of life. Yeah. And it will appear to be an intelligent entity solving the game of life. Now, I can imitate a dog. It doesn't mean I'm a dog. And you will have an AI that can imitate a human being. It doesn't mean it's a human being. Yeah. But it's going to look like one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the big question then becomes, we're pretty sure we can create the algorithms... Who's working on defining the game of life as a problem that can be solved? Yeah. Because if they get that wrong, we're in big trouble. Mm. So this issue of is life just a big game really is can life be, can a game be created for the game of life which an AI can solve constantly? Yeah. And then you're going to have the problem of proving that there's more to life than that, or yeah. say proceed to wipe us out. Yeah, um, I think that's a good point. Uh, I probably agree with you. I, th I think I think we'll create something that looks very much like it has consciousness, but yeah. it won't actually have consciousness. But you know, if it's ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the way there, then what's well, the effective difference? Well, it's. It's not going to be human consciousness, but one of the things we've really learned from AI is measuring intelligence the way humans do it can be a very misleading way of looking at what intelligence is. Yeah. I think our whole understanding of the scope of intelligence has increased dramatically, and like technology, we don't have good theories on this you know no we don't understand the human brain well enough do we we don't understand consciousness we don't understand psychology we don't understand motivation intelligence we really don't understand any of this stuff at its core this is so absolutely right and it's one of the important points we suck at these days into believing that science has found all these answers and anything it hasn't found an answer to it shortly will mm. but when you actually look at those fundamental questions you've just raised, yep. um, the answer is we haven't made much progress on any of those in three or 4,000 years. Yeah. Um, so... And some, some, some guy's going to be uh, hosting a podcast in 3,000 years and look back at our society and goes, oh, what took them so long? You know, they should have just done that in five years. Absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately not, because as Harari says, everything gets faster. You know, yeah. 70,000 years, 12,000 years, 500 years, 100 years, we'll probably be down to five minutes. I'm looking forward to uh, the day when we, we read a book about artificial intelligence and all this stuff because I know you're passionate about it and you know a lot about it and um, it's a very interesting topic.
I look forward to that too. But in the meantime, talking about things getting faster, we've run out of time. <laughs> we have indeed. So uh, thanks for your time as always. I enjoyed that, um, even though I'm not feeling very well. But um, I will um, I'll see you on the flip-flop. La, 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 la.